attention, representation, and affiliation. Those are the pillars of narrative medicine. And then what does it look like in a clinical perspective or maybe in the community? It's slowing down time, not interrupting, providing not only a safe space, but a brave space for vulnerability that somebody may be able to share personal details that otherwise they would feel maybe a little standoffish about or even protective about. And by providing that space for them to lead the conversation, they help lay out the plot of their own narrative. Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation, a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality healthcare through policy action and partnerships. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman. Today, I'm honored to speak with Derek McCracken, who has a passion for utilizing narrative medicine to connect with patients beyond charts and statistics to improve the quality of care for all people and their caregivers. In addition to that, he enjoys theater and writing reviews for off-Broadway shows, caring for his two dogs, and traveling to see his daughter. Derek, thank you so much for being here with me. You describe yourself as a narrative health activist. That's a very unique title. Tell me what that exactly means. Thank you, Ashley. Well, when I moved to New York in 2014, it was to study a field called narrative medicine at Columbia University. And basically, narrative medicine is story-based healthcare that relies on a relationship between the care provider and the receiver of care to engage in plot-based care. So every story has form, tone, theme, characters, and a direction that works both directions. And so once I arrived in New York, one of the things I had to do was to find a primary care physician. And I looked online, I found somebody close to home, and I noticed that in my first visit, I went to hang my coat on the door and I was told, you can't hang that there. So the tone was a little off and it gave me a little impression of the environment. So I decided that, well, when I study narrative medicine, I'm gonna try to approach it a little bit differently, a little more personally. And so I made that a personal mission. So once I finished my coursework at Columbia, I eventually came on staff as an instructor in the Certificate of Professional Achievement Program. And I'm a course instructor for pedagogy, which basically prepares the narrative medicine instructors and practitioners for the future. Beyond the classroom and in the community, I work as an advocate for Mount Sinai Hospital they have a SAVVY program, which is the Sexual Assault and Violence Intervention Program. So twice a month, I'm on call, and if I am buzzed in by the dispatcher, then I arrive at the hospital in the emergency department, and I'm on site with somebody who has just been the uh, victim of a physical or sexual assault. And in addition to the nursing and the medical care they receive, I'm present to run interference to make sure they get the sort of personal care they need, attention, something as simple as charging their phone, getting something to eat, maybe some water to drink, things that often get overlooked in a very busy ED. Uh, the third element of the work that I do is with SAA. It's a health literacy agency in New York, founded in 2007, and they provide community events, webinars, education, and what I appreciate about the say ah approach is that it's also very narrative based. It's not just the story of the event that's happening in the patient's or the consumer's life, but it's where do they fit in the community 
before they engage with the healthcare provider, while they're at the healthcare provider's office, and then what happens afterwards. So it's very holistic. You approach it from so many different angles and, and your work interlaps with health literacy and communications and advocacy and, and all of these things in a really beautiful way. And so this season, we are talking about health literacy and what does that exactly mean? How do you define health literacy and the importance of communications and all of these interactions? So health literacy to me is about clear health communications. And I belong to a group on TELUS Worldwide that has this clear health communications task force. And we looked long and hard at, well, why is health literacy so difficult to achieve? And something we realized was that it puts the onus of understanding and accountability on, on the patient. Not only does that seem unjust and unfair, is it even feasible? However, if we reframe it as clear health communication, then that's a way to level the playing field. So for me, the ability to express oneself easily and articulately means fluency more so than a state of literacy. So it's not a state or a presence, it's a process. And the reason that I bring up narrative so often is that we may think of something, we may have a concept in our mind about something, but until something is spoken or written and becomes an account of connected events, then it truly doesn't exist. And so this whole notion of reframing health literacy as clear health communications that demands narrative fluency it engages both the consumer and the care provider. How do you all shed light on that and train people in the narrative medicine program to do that and to help and teach other patients how to do that? Narrative medicine rests on three pillars or, or movements, if you will, attention, representation, and affiliation. And so when Dr. Rita Sharon started the program and she was already an internist and she went to get a PhD in literature, she noticed that there was a way that she was close reading a novel or a poem or listening to a song or looking at a work of art that demanded close attention to detail, recognition and respect. Easily to translate that into how we engage with a person and not label them as a patient, but a person with a history and a background and family and relationships. So the first pillar again is attention. And the second is representation. And that refers to what form does this text take? So a text, again, could be a poem, a novel, a song, a video, a piece of sculpture, food, anything that's three-dimensional in, the, in that form. And from a personal standpoint, how is the person or patient presenting themselves? How do they describe themselves? What pronouns do they choose? What form are they presenting themselves? And the third pillar, affiliation, that takes more time, it's the relationship. And so when I described the, you can't hang that there, that was not a great way for me to bond with a, a care provider from the get-go. But affiliation, it's about relationships. So over time, we get to know one another a little bit better. And a story that I can share is when I was shadowing uh, a doctor who was serving HIV and AIDS patients, somebody came in and she remembered that this person had a difficult family relationship 
And so rather than asking, how was your Christmas? She said, how was your December? And just by opening up the conversation, she didn't make any sort of assumption about this person's holiday. And you could see the person be a little bit more at ease. So attention, representation, and affiliation, those are the pillars of narrative medicine. And then what does it look like in a clinical perspective or maybe in the community? It's slowing down time, not interrupting, providing not only a, a safe space, but a brave space for vulnerability that somebody may be able to share personal details that otherwise they would feel maybe a little standoffish about or even protective about. And by providing that space for them to lead the conversation, they help lay out the plot of their own narrative. And that gives not only them agency, but also creativity to shape the narrative. I love that. Slowing down and not interrupting. And so for narrative medicine, are these lessons or is this program taught to providers or patients? How does it work? It seems like it would help a lot of people and change a lot of dynamics. In an ideal world, all of us would be able to achieve narrative competency. And by that, it's the highest level of narrative fluency, this ability to take in everything I just told you about, close reading of a text and the attentive listening and this engagement on a practical level. Currently, Columbia and the Keck School of Medicine are the two programs that offer a master's degree in narrative medicine. Columbia also offers the certificate of professional achievement where we see a high rate of return from attendance is that we offer workshops now online because of the pandemic. What used to be on-site or in-class work has converted pretty seamlessly to a virtual format. And I have been present either as an attendee or a leader of a workshop with members from seven continents represented at the same time. And so when we talk about affiliation, it's now reached a, a global scale that's incredibly inspiring. So we have the programs themselves, we have workshops, and they have sometimes specific thematic weekend workshops that are maybe based on anti-racism or creativity. So you can maybe think of it as uh, narrative medicine as one stripe on the medical humanities beach ball. So there's, there's more to be seen not all of it is visible at one time, but it's ongoing. That's a visual. I love that. One stripe on the beach ball, because there are so many stripes, right, to be able to achieve this world where there is equitable and affordable health care and where it is patient centered and where people do feel listened to and heard and, and understood and all of those nuances of their lives. There's just so much beauty in that. Can anyone sign up and pursue this type of knowledge? Because yes, obviously it's helpful in a provider-patient relationship, but I think these are tools and a skill set that we can all learn from. We welcome all. And the way that we have done it with the Narrative Medicine program, if people visit narrativemedicine.blog, we have these virtual workshops multiple times during the week in multiple languages. In addition to English and Spanish, it's Greek, Polish, and they keep adding more and more as we get more people trained in the narrative competency model. And I'll relate this to the work we do with Intellis and Insea. It really is community-based education. And so although the pandemic put a huge barrier into the on-site workshops, I think everybody figured out simultaneously, but if people have access to the internet, then we can provide this sort of training 
and workshops online. And I will also say that because narrative medicine is so creatively based, so when I talk about a text, creativity is fundamental to our pedagogy. So we may use an Audre Lorde poem, but with the internet, we can have a YouTube video of Audre Lorde reading slash performing the poem. That's a much different experience. And so we are using the technology to our advantage by bringing people together from all over the world to engage in this creative real-time experience that includes not only a close reading of a text and a discussion of it, but then the other half of a workshop always includes the generative piece of creative writing. So maybe a, a short writing prompt followed by three or four minutes of creative writing and we talk about that. So ideally, if we were on site, we might repeat a workshop the next week or once a month for six months. Much of narrative medicine is about the experience. So we try to make it as immersive as possible. You can imagine the, the energy and excitement that is generated if we have, again, people from seven different countries collaborating at the same time in the same space. That's very unique. I know that you said with the work that you do at Say Ah, they are also very narrative based and having a similar approach and value system when it comes to the importance of communications. So can you expound a little bit about Say Ah and their work and, and how it helps people to become more literate about their healthcare and really take ownership of that? So when I joined Say Ah, it was on a project basis. I was just curious about the work they were doing. And I shadowed the executive director, Anna Allen, and we visited an agency that was teaching teenagers about their self-health. And what I found interesting was there was on-site a teenage liaison. So it wasn't just the adult authority figures running the workshop. There was somebody on-site that was sort of a member of the group that was an ally. And I thought, that's a unique model. So this is not the medical model of one person with authority, you know, thrusting knowledge onto another group, it really was a partner situation. So that's one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, we've done workshops on site at Sage in New York for LGBT seniors, and they were just as engaged as the teenagers, just from a different perspective with much more life wisdom. So their life goals were different. So they, like the teenagers, were very much tied into wanting to be seen, heard, valued, respected, and engaged. And I think, again, just that notion of slowing down, give them space to tell their story, ask questions, help us gauge our curriculum to meet their needs. And health literacy with both of these populations is far beyond providing a tip list or a set of guidance Again, that sounds very thou shall, thou shall not sort of. It's open up the conversation. What are, what are their concerns? And uh, a model that I use, and I know that Anna came from a journalism background, as did I, five W's and an H is a real easy way for me to engage with somebody and to make sure I haven't forgotten something. So what does that look like? Who, what, where, why, when, and how? And so if I have time to have a conversation with someone, I may ask, who is on your care team? And then I say nothing. And inevitably, the person might ask, well, what do you mean by care team? I'll say, well, tell me who supports you in your healthcare journey. And then we talk about 
what is a healthcare journey? And so basically these, these sorts of questions are just a way into a conversation, which is the foundation then for this affiliation slash relationship. And if I can continue on when I get to the what, it's what are your concerns? What are your worries? What are your resources? And that may sound like an inventory list. And to some degree it is. It's helping me assess where is this person on their, their need scale. Something as simple as where, where do you go for healthcare? It helps me discern, particularly in New York, do they have access to transportation? What does that look like? Do they need to take off work to seek healthcare? Are they themselves providing healthcare for other people? It can be quite a complicated matter if they're not the, the only person in the, in the dynamic. And although why comes later in the list, it's actually a good one to start. You know, why, why are you here? Why are you concerned about this particular health situation? And that is a way also, again, to get people to open up. And it provides a very helpful context. As a person with a journalism background, I have a deep appreciation for those W's and, and the H. And it's really taking it back to the basics and not overlooking the importance of those questions because it, it does allow you to get to the root of a lot of things. So for you, how do you feel like narrative medicine and communications and trust and social justice works all together or impacts each other? Well, I think healthcare is the human experience. And so when I think of the work that a group of students at Columbia in 2018 launched, it was sort of like a call to action for the administration about ways to improve the program so that it was more just from a racial standpoint. What we discovered was over a series of years was that that was a way in to that particular approach. Could we expand it so that it applied on a broader social justice scale to embrace the LGBTQ community. And we talk about ableism and ageism. And so we cast a little bit wider net, but then we look for opportunities to specialize. And so is it that we offer different kinds of curriculum, guest lecturers, initiatives? We recently hosted a performance salon elevating our voices where people could share their creative work and their activism work just to make it more visible. And I think where we learned through the work that we did with Say Ah was that we knew we had limitations, meaning that on our board, yes, we could be more diverse, even with the constitution of the uh, current board membership. And so we reached out to provide access to experts in their respective fields in anti-racism work, and not just in the academy. This is not just an academic exercise, but uh, it was a three-night event, and we had a different theme each night, and we uh, documented the webinar and put it on the SEAS website, which is SEAS.org, and it's, it's very critical that we document the work and make it available to a broader audience. And so I really respect that with the work at Columbia and say, ah, uh, something they do is not just do the work, they contain the work, they provide the work in a vessel that's accessible to others going forward so that we can respect what preceded us. You know, we look ahead, certainly, but I think we also have to validate and affirm 
the work that was done before we got here all the way back to maybe reading a, uh, a land use statement or acknowledging uh, who was on this land at Columbia before we were here. And like you said, it's not just an academic exercise. There's true action behind it. And so for you, with all this knowledge of narrative medicine and all your experiences advocating for others, now that you know all of these things and you've been exposed to the importance of communications and, and health literacy and, and narration and storytelling, how has that impacted your personal interactions with your healthcare team and, and you know, how you view your healthcare journey? That is a good question. And so I think this kind of puts me uh, back into the role of a consumer and that if I see my primary care physician twice a year, I try to be what I would consider a good patient. And by that, I mean that if the appointment is for noon and they say to please check in by 1150, I try to back off my travel time to get there as soon as I can so I can actually be ready on time. I bring something to read so that rather than developing a bad attitude during the long wait, which I know will happen, I have a little bit of something I can do during during the wait. I bring a list of questions, and that's something I got from Say Ah, is what questions do I want answered from my physician? And I've had the same physician now uh, since I arrived in New York in 2014. We have a good relationship. She knows me. I know her, she knows what I'm studying, she knows my personal relationship with my partner, she knows that I'm a father, she knows that I've lost you know, several relatives to different cancers, and I'm a busy person, but we always take time for each other. Not more time. It's still the same 20 minutes I had you know, 10 years ago, but we use that time differently. And apps get a lot of airtime these days there's an app for that. Look on Epic, you know, put it online. I don't use that as an excuse or a primary bridge. I use it as a backup to the conversation that I have with my physician. So in addition to documenting what happens during the visit, I make sure it exists in at least two places. What are three tips that you would share with someone who's listening to this who does want a better relationship with their, their provider or a provider who wants a better relationship with the people that they serve and, and take care of that would increase and nurture these relationships? I think three tips I can give to anybody listening about the importance of health literacy and clear health communications has to do with knowledge, skills, and attitude. So the knowledge is you matter your health story matters, and you are empowered to influence the trajectory of your health story. The skill, every one of us is creative. Earlier I talked about using poetry, prose, music. Every one of us is imbued with the creativity, both as somebody who experiences life through the beauty of nature and travel and communication, but also as creative problem solvers. If you're listening to this right now, you're a creative problem solver. You're, you're opening yourself up to new information in, in a new way. And then I think finally, the third tip of, of attitude, and that has to do with the, do we engage in a relationship 
with assuming positive intent? Or is it defiance? Or is it skepticism? What works for you? But you're not alone. And if you have access to an advocate to bring with you to a patient experience, whether it's in a clinic or just to get advice. So again, you're not alone. I'm Ashley Freeman, and thanks for listening to this episode of Advocates in Action. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. We enjoy connecting with our listeners, so please visit our website at npaf.org slash podcast for show notes, resources, and ways to engage with us on social media. Thanks for listening.